Thank you for joining us again here at Homeland, the podcast. And if you just found us, welcome. My name is Frank Foreman, and I'm the host of this podcast and chapter lead for the Naval Postgraduate School's Center for Homeland Defense and Security, Southern California Regional Alumni Chapter. Our mission is to bring you yesterday's pioneers, today's leaders, and tomorrow's visionaries within the realm of Homeland Security. In today's episode, I had the opportunity to speak with the director of FEMA's National Integration Center, Mr. Dan Alexander. Our conversation centered on the direction and changes that have been underway at FEMA since Administrator Brock Long began implementing his vision. Some of you may have heard our conversation with Brock in episode one, which happened to be our inaugural show. We were fortunate to be one of the first forums where he publicly outlined his vision of building a culture of preparedness and shifting FEMA's role in our changing dynamics and the frequency of our catastrophic events. In this episode, Dan and I talk about how that's been going, integrating lessons learned, and briefly touching upon the newly released Community Lifelines. So let's welcome Dan Alexander. All right, today we're here with Dan Alexander, who is the director of the National Integration Center at FEMA. Uh, welcome, Dan. Thanks, Frank. Great um, to be here. That's great. We're here at uh, APEX, which is the annual conference for the Center for Homeland Defense and Security here in Monterey. And Dan just gave a great presentation on FEMA and the great work and changes that have occurred to the agency over the last year. So. First, if you could tell us a little about who you are and your background, sure. and then we'll go into this. Yeah, well, like uh, most people in emergency management, I never thought that I would be here. I uh, started out in law enforcement, so I thought I was going to be a cop uh, the rest of my life, uh, but fell into emergency management originally from Milwaukee. And then uh, when September 11th occurred and Homeland Security was born, I... Uh, became the Homeland Security Director for the city, fell into emergency management that way. And so did that uh, in Milwaukee for a couple of years and then uh, moved to Denver, Colorado and was the Emergency Management Homeland Security Director there for a couple of years. And then I came to FEMA in 2011, originally as a federal coordinating officer there in, in Region 8 in Denver, and then um, came to headquarters back in 2014 and now uh, serve as the Director of the National Integration Center. Did Ryan Rockerbrand take your spot? So he did. Okay. As, uh, yeah, when I left uh, Region 8 as the Federal Disaster Recovery Coordinator, we hired him to replace me out there. Okay, so, good. I've yeah. known Ryan for a long time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, no, he's great. I know yeah, he's got he's, a new position there. And he's at headquarters now, too. That's yeah. what I heard. So I'm, I'm really uh, happy for him. Yeah. So one day, maybe I'll bring a friend on. That might be good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, that's, that's a nice background. I, I do uh, understand that you were law enforcement, so... I'm fire. So. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how and this goes. Getting, and this is all part of FEMA. We're getting along together. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's, that's perfect. So there was a lot of different things with FEMA that's happened, and, and this strategic vision that right. uh, Brock Long uh, had laid out and the movement forward. So I just, for me, I'm a, a firefighter who has an emergency management background who deals with emergency management, I was really interested to hear, I'm interested to hear what you have to say, because mm -hmm. I've sat in with the National Qualification System webinars, mm -hmm. I've sat on the Lifeline webinars, 
And so these are some of the areas you brought up today. Mm-hmm. So if you could just give like a, sure. a basic understanding of what we're doing and, and we don't need to delve too deeply into yeah. it. Um, but yeah, that'd yeah, be great. Yeah. No, I, I'd be happy to. So, I mean, I think one of the great things that Administrator Long has done with the agency is really focus the agency when he first came on around some guiding principles and three basic ones, right? Not a large, you know, fully complex uh, strategic plan. He engaged the entire workforce. He engaged state and locals our customer base for the agency, basically come up with these three priority areas, building a culture of preparedness, readying the nation for catastrophic uh, disasters, and then reducing the complexity of FEMA programs. Since that was released, you know, about a year and a half, almost two years ago, the agency has really focused and coalesced around those, those things and identified a number of initiatives. So we had that strategic process underway. We also had the 2017 and 2018 disaster seasons. So the most taxing of our agency and the nation, the most expensive in history, challenges across the board with the breadth and scope of the work. So those events have really got us to where we are now and have really focused us even more on understanding what doctrine needs to change, how we continue moving these strategic priorities, but what do we also need to address to incorporate the lessons that we learned from these last two disaster seasons. And that's now leading toward a revision of the national response framework. Yeah, that's what uh, is really interesting for me is last year after speaking mm-hmm. with the administrator, and then a few months later, I spoke with uh, Mona Barnes from uh, right. from the right. US Virgin Islands. And most of the issues that she was talking about that they encountered during her, the disaster with the back-to-back hurricanes are the areas that FEMA has really been addressing, and the shifts and changes have mm-hmm. been really interesting to watch. So yeah. on the core values, uh, or the, the, the stru- three core mm-hmm. uh, strategic values for mm-hmm. FEMA, how are you guys addressing it related to the national response framework and say, the emergency support functions and so forth, and the introduction of lifelines. Yeah. Again, this is also lessons learned, uh, especially from 2017, 2018. So there was a recognition that we have the national response framework in place, and you know we had our concept of emergency support functions, our core capabilities, and all of that is great. So we build, nationally, we're trying to build toward core capabilities. We we go through a a Thyra threat hazard, a risk assessment um, to understand where we collectively fall. you know, on those capabilities where gaps are. When when that's operationalized, though, and especially in an event like Puerto Rico, where in the Virgin Islands, where, you know, we tried to take our existing operational structure and put it on something that was so big. And we missed some things, right? We missed things nationally. We missed some things as an agency. And so what that's done is that helped identify when we have a large complex incident, we need to identify some priorities around incident stabilization that we need to all coalesce around. We need to build our information requirements around, our assessment of existing systems, and our understanding of the impacts uh, from one sector to the next. That led to the development of what we call the community lifelines. These are seven basic lifelines that are the priorities for incident stabilization in these large uh, events. You know, things such as communications, food, water, shelter, health care, uh, health systems, power, those things that, again, 
need to be addressed and need to be priorities to stabilize an incident. We're not even talking restoration. We're getting, you know, obviously this is just stabilizing the incident. What we're working on is identifying these seven lifelines, organizing the existing emergency support function structure around those lifelines, and then developing what are those essential elements of information? What are the data sets that we need to pull together so that we have a clear understanding and assessment of everything that's going on within that lifeline? The administrator likes to tell the story of what hit home for this. There's a the huge private sector component to this as well, is how do we, across those lifelines, then better integrate the private sector into the decisions that are being made at the government level. So the administrator likes to tell the story. In the example of Puerto Rico, communications, establishing, reestablishing comms was one of our biggest challenges, right, in Puerto Rico. Well, we didn't recognize that uh, FEMA and that as we're sending equipment and personnel, our FEMA personnel in air assets that are going into Puerto Rico, we should have been accommodating and sending in the AT&Ts and the Verizons and allowing them to get in there so that they can reestablish those comms. We occupied all of the resources going in, preventing something from being one of these lifelines to be established, which continue to hamper us days and days. So that's what led to this understanding and creation about how do we better assess the current operational status around these incident priorities of stabilization. Yeah, I I think it's really interesting. We always talk about lessons learned, uh, do after action reviews. Too often, I think those get sugarcoated, right. and people want to make all lovely flowers and, right. and their rainbows. And and the fact that you guys recognize that your resources going in hampered others, I think, is an amazing recognition right. and way of making adjustments for future disasters. We used to have the Black Swan event, which is now a bevy of black swans. <laughs> I mean, it's nonstop. It's right, one, exactly. one major disaster after another. Just that subtle change, I think, is going to be able to help significantly. There's another change that FEMA has done as well, is instead of trying to come in, run the incident, provide that support. Can you talk a Mm -hmm. little bit how you guys are streamlining um, that and maybe even in line with the type of disasters you guys are actually responding to now to not stretch yourself so thin. Yeah, is um, so as we're you know kind of establishing back on the national response framework, we're looking to get a draft that'll go out for national engagement, and we want to really make sure that we get these principles down and operationalized before this next hurricane season. In addition to that, in addition to what we've recognized and the challenges that we faced and what led to the revision of the NRF, one of the other things that the administrator and we've been focused on through reducing the complexity of FEMA programs, but also readying ourselves for the for the catastrophic, is what should the true role of FEMA and the federal government be? 75% of the presidentially declared disasters are under $41 million. To a community, that's a lot, obviously. From a national perspective, though, we're now, we've entered the phase in which we're dealing with disasters in the hundreds of billions of dollars, rebuilding Puerto Rico. And so how do we manage our resources, but how do we also also then equip state and local communities so that we can get to a vision that the administrators articulated of being a federally funded, state-managed, but locally executed recovery. We're doing that in a number of ways. One is that we're actually, through some recent legislation called the Disaster Reform Recovery Act, has allowed administrative caps to be raised on some of our recovery programs. So states and locals are able to utilize more of that funding to actually hire and administer those programs. So that's a big one. 
win right there. Number two is we're trying to, through various tools like the National Qualification System, identifying emergency management positions that emergency management organizations should have so that they can understand the funding stream world out there when it gets to recovery, understand how to manage those projects, those recovery projects, understanding the coordination that's required. And so we're building position task books, we're building incident titles that states and locals can use to help build that capability, as well as providing some planning guidance. So we're developing, there's over 200 recovery programs that could be utilized across 17 different agencies just at the federal level. So that's, for most small communities, that's an overwhelming task if you have a big disaster. I, you know, was the federal disaster recovery coordinator in Region 8 for the Colorado floods in 2013. We had small communities of just three or four full-time staff for the city. They were going to be now receiving hundreds of millions of dollars in federal aid to manage those projects, manage all of that is a challenge. And so we're working on guides and tools as well to help prepare the emergency management community and understand how to coordinate all of that funding, the timing of that funding, pitfalls that come with the funding so that they're set up for success more effectively. We're trying to focus and empower through various mechanisms, through additional resources that the legislation brought, but also through guidance and tools to help build that capability so states are able to execute their own recovery in a more effective manner. Everyone talks about, oh, keep the big government away from, mm-hmm. uh, from uh, we know more than, than the big government does. Right. And this approach takes that to heart. That's and right. one thing that I've said on several podcasts, I don't like calling fire or police uh, first responders. I, the first responders are community. Right. And That's right. we're emergency responders. So as it goes for the funding, it seems to me it's shifted from a lot of post-disaster to pre-disaster yeah. mitigation work. Yeah. And part of it is with our own infrastructure. Another part is getting our communities more prepared and resilient for these disasters. Right. And that comes in ways of the community actually getting insurance or increasing their insurance. So could you talk a little bit about the insurance gap? Because I have friends and professors that lost their homes during the Thomas fire. Mm -hmm. And after conversations is, they thought they were well-insured, and they actually were underinsured. So can you go a bit? I I know insurance is probably one of the most critical things anyone can do. So if you could talk about that. Yeah, you hit on a couple of themes there that I'd like to drill down a little bit on. So you're absolutely right on mitigation. Mitigation, building a cultural preparedness, our priority. The Disaster Reform Recovery Act that I spoke about earlier provides opportunities and actually is funding new programs to make mitigation a priority. That we now, under this funding, have a pre-disaster hazard mitigation grant program dealing with infrastructure. That is now tied to the Disaster Relief Fund as a 6% set aside from the disaster expenses. It is a funding source that could equate to the billions, a funding source that is tied to the DRF that's more stable as opposed to what we've had in past to really address the pre-disaster public infrastructure environment to harden and make those investments pre-disaster. As to your point, uh, so, you know, that in addition to the, the, you know, when we talk about insurance, whether it's flood insurance, all hazard insurance, earthquake insurance, wildfire, that is one of the biggest challenges that we face in this country is the non-insured or very high levels of underinsurance across this disaster profile. We've got the National Institute of Building Sciences released a study that if we spend $1 on federally funded mitigation projects, that saves $6 in future disaster costs. That's up from what it was... it was $4 before. So those investments are making a difference. That The challenge, as you pointed out, is 
The annual unexpected uninsured losses from earthquake, flood, and wind damage total more than $30 billion, according to our global reinsurer, Swiss Re. So this means that more than half of these losses won't even be covered by insurance. This non-insurance and under-insurance issue is a real issue. And our number one message on building a culture of preparedness is making sure people understand their risk and making sure that they try to make the investment in insurance, because that is your primary recovery program. Individual assistance is the program that we have to offer some funding to individuals and families. If you take a look at Texas, for instance, in Harvey, without flood insurance, they received a $4,000 average individual assistance payment. With flood insurance, there was an average $110,000 payout. I can't stress, and we're trying to pitch this every way we can, we cannot stress it enough that you need to get insurance, even if you're not in a flood hazard area. We have seen most of the impacts in Hurricane Harvey in Texas were not in in a special flood hazard area. Yeah, I, that was uh, Melanie Barnes from Houston area. Uh, I spoke with her a bit about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I used to be involved when the regional catastrophic planning grant was mm-hmm. in force. I was FEMA Region 9, mm-hmm. and Mel is down in Houston, and I had the opportunity to talk with her. Her and her team were phenomenal, but dealing with the flooding, uh, yeah. with the hurricanes, just absolutely amazing the amount of water that came into areas that no one ever anticipated. That's exactly right. And and so it's so to me it's it's getting our communities, the true first responders, prepared so they can be more resilient. That's right. Because during any catastrophic disaster, I mean just the word catastrophic it's overwhelming all regional resources. People have come to expect that the emergency response community can readily be available until that disaster strikes. Right. And we noticed that with the Camp Fire and then the Woolsey Fire, the state was already on drawdown, meaning that all the resources were back to their areas because of all the issues that we had. And I believe at the Woolsey, we had 22 different states provide resources wow. for us. Although we were and addressing the, the disaster that was occurring, overwhelmed, the, right. the region's overwhelmed. So the community has to be prepared. That's and, right. And that's through insurance, it's through training, yeah. it's through whatever ways they can do better preparation. Yeah, I, I mean, it's everything. Do you know how to turn off your water and gas? I mean, you know, do you know CPR? Do you know, you know who your neighbors are so you could check on them? And those are some very simple, basic things that you can do that that we as individual community members can do to just raise our resilience and to at least make that initial effort to harden ourselves against these threats and disasters. So we all have a part and this is the message that needs to be sent. Know who your neighbors are, learn first aid, learn how to turn off critical utilities and get insurance. I want to go back just one step. I mean, I don't want to decrease. I think those are absolutely amazing. You've got the community who's taking care of themselves now you have local resources working together to provide incident stabilization, mm-hmm. and that's utilizing the seven lifelines mm-hmm. to more effectively grab specific emergency support functions mm-hmm. to work together. Correct. And the end result, and you would said this, was the changing from the emergency management 2.0 right. is going into the outcome-driven recovery. Yeah. So can you okay. give a little... Yeah, I touched on this a little bit. And, you know, again, Administrator Long really has been articulated this vision that we've done, even though we're facing, you know, we're we're facing challenges and increasing disasters and more catastrophic nature. Emergency management has really been, for a long time, centered around the response, the incident command system, NIMS. All of that is absolutely critical. It is the national doctrine about how we manage and how we deal with incident management and incident response. And that's uh, key. What we're seeing and what the administrator is articulating is the challenges that we see in recovery now and mitigation from these events is 
is been very decentralized and has been kind of haphazard. To understand that when we have these large scale events that occur, the resources that it's going to take to recover, the ability to be able to manage those resources, that's what emergency management really needs to evolve to moving forward is getting into this more project management understanding and role, how coordinating programs come together, how we set a vision for recovery, then how you execute that vision, and how do you access the resources that are made available. It's kind of a different take, a way many emergency managers, including me, were, you know, were brought up and brought into the profession. And so that's why I think the charge is an understanding what we've learned and what we've seen, the challenges in recovery as these disasters get larger and larger. It's just incumbent upon the emergency management community to you know, go into that next evolution and understanding better who their partners are, but how they fit in. Now, many will say, and you know, when I was a local emergency manager in Milwaukee and Denver, you know, we, we tried doing that and, you know, we identified our partners. Um, but recovery has really presented a challenge and building our recovery capabilities and increasing those capabilities nationally continues to be a challenge for us. So that's what I think Brock is referring to in this outcome-driven recovery concept is, you know, if you have an event that occurs, how do you conceptualize where you want to be, and then how do you access the resources and develop a project plan to get there? I like the forward progress and the movement uh, and changes. Uh, One thing that I just want to stress is that whoever's listening who does recovery or is responsible for recovery, um, they should know this, but maybe other leadership doesn't understand also that recovery starts at the beginning of the incident. That's right. And let's not wait because the amount of money that local jurisdictions can lose by not tracking from the beginning or utilizing their resources they already have before going and spending money on something else and and understanding the intricacies of it. And that forward thinking, understanding where they need to go, I think is really critical. Yeah, everything even to contracting and procurement that you should have in place and pre-disaster contracts. I mean, all of those things are just elements and tools to help you move that community much more quickly. So so that's why we're dedicating resources, tools, and planning guidance uh, to help communities help them get there. Yeah, well, I, I do appreciate it. And, and I just want to ask you, is there anything else that you might want to cover that we didn't touch on or talk about in the last, I don't know, 20, yeah, 25 minutes? Yeah, no, this, this was great. I think, again, it, it's been an incredible two years, right? Since, you know, Administrator Long got it, it I, he's always made a joke about something big always happens just after he starts a new job, and clearly that, that continued. But uh, here at FEMA, I think, you know, what we've been able to experience over the last two, two and a half years understand what we need to think differently about and how we execute that has really been remarkable. Not not just FEMA, but just kind of as a nation and, you know, the challenges that everybody's facing. So that's why we're laser focused on these three priorities and taking advantage and leveraging the legislative opportunities that have been presented themselves to drive us toward this outcome-driven recovery. It's very exciting, but we've got a lot of challenges ahead and we're just going to continue getting busier and busier. I know the change of uh, leadership there is now underway and and I think the leadership that Brock brought along and has implemented is, is provided a solid foundation. I hope I hope it certainly the, has. The new administrator can, can, uh, continues on, and and uh, I think the country will be better for it. Yeah, absolutely, and that's what we're. I, I mean, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Jeff Byard has been nominated uh, to be the next administrator. He was there implementing all of this. You know, as this was being developed, he, you know, um, he and Brock were, came from uh, Alabama, so we're very excited and very confident that these priorities 
these strategies and these initiatives are locked on what we've been doing and are going to continue. That's great. Continued consistency. Exactly. And that'll, that'll be beneficial for everybody. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, is there any way that anyone, if they wanted to reach out to you, that they could? Yeah, absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn. So you look uh, Daniel Alexander, but also just feel free to shoot me an email. I'm Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L dot Alexander, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R at FEMA dot D-H-S dot gov. Perfect. I'll also include that in the show notes so that Great. they can just take a look at that. All so, right. Dan, thank you. I do appreciate you and all the work you do, and thank Man, you very you much. You guys are appreciate this and, and uh, the great opportunity and the networking that you've put together and the kind of innovative way that you as a cohort and as a chapter uh, for CHDS stay together. This is a great opportunity. Yeah, well, thank you. Appreciate cool. that. Thanks. All right. So there you have it, Dan Alexander. I hope you took away as much as I did out of the conversation Dan and I had. What I found most interesting is FEMA's dedication to not just learn, but integrate positive changes following their after-action review, or AAR, process. Their recognition of the lack of deliberate focus on incident stabilization led to the creation of the community lifelines. This approach creates the bridge or crosswalk between the differing essential functions Breaking the silos between the ESFs and finding the thread that connects each to accomplish an overall task is key to tackling the forward progress of an incident or event. If you'd like to get in touch with Dan, you can find him on LinkedIn or email him at daniel.alexander at fema.dhs.gov. And as always, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous, share our show with your friends and peers. If you would also leave us a review and subscribe. This way, each time we release an episode, it will be ready for you in iTunes or whichever platform you use for your podcast. And with that, I'm Frank Foreman, your host. And until our next episode, take care.